You are listening to Boku no Stop, an anime podcast that lies somewhere between agony and ecstasy, maybe two knuckles deep. Uh, credit to partner Emily for that joke. I'm your host, uh-huh. Sybil Arnett, and with me is... Matt. And I'm Garrett. And today we are talking about The Woman Called Fujiko Mine, episodes 5 through 6. Content warnings for today's batch include sexual assault and deception, and maybe skip ahead to episode 6 if you aren't fond of scorpions. There's a lot of scorpions. <laughs> Covered in scorpions. <laughs> like like a comical amount of scorpions. So many CGI scorpions. I mean, My it's a God, Lupin a episode. You have to have the comedic amount of something. <laughs> that is true. But we're going to start off with episode five, Blood Soaked Triangle. And as we kick off, Fujiko is admiring a necklace full of gems and bathing in a pool. But then Lupin shows up, and we realize that she is wearing nothing but this very gaudy necklace. He claims that he brought roses, which seem to be rubies, but when he puts out the torches around, suddenly they appear to be Alexandrite, which glows red in firelight, blue in sunlight. She says that this is impressive, but she needs something larger. And he makes mention of his threat from episode one, which is never empty when he says that he is going to claim something, specifically her. So now they have a reason to team up on a job because there is a much larger Alexandrite pendant under a pyramid in Alexandria. Both are intrigued. So we cut from there to the story of uh, Matt, the Egyptian god, and uh, the judgment of the dead, which we will. This comes up a whole lot. It's basically, yeah, there's a feather on one end of the scale and you put your heart on the other end of the scale. And depending on how heavy your sin is, you either are allowed to be reborn or not. Uh, Jigen is the one who is narrating this because... We are, in his point of view, he's on a boat heading towards Alexandria. And, uh, like, he's sleeping with, like, the book over his face at this point. And it's very funny, too, because, like, he gets woken up and, like, he notices everybody else is scared of him because, like, this is the only motherfucker in a suit. <laughs> everybody else is just wearing, like, kind of regular clothes. He really stands out here. And they're all, he's all like, wow, everyone knows I'm a bad guy. I'm like, well, Yeah. <laughs> You You're probably a fucking have fedora, two, my guy. You probably have two revolvers shoved out the handle of your pants. <laughs> no, it's yeah, only at one. Least one. <laughs> he's only carrying one this episode, yes. Uh, so he's in town now, and he's walking through uh, like a market, and a kid with a monkey offers to weigh his sins on a scale. And it's funny because the way they do the cut, they make it sound like the monkey was the one who called him over first. <laughs> uh, but he ends up taunting Jigen into doing the uh, doing the bit. And it's like a little like metal fake heart that he's supposed to put his sins into. So it's not he didn't literally pull the shit out of his chest. But as soon as he does it, the uh, you know, and, and like Jigen's like he knows it's rigged. He knows and he calls it out like he's like, yeah, this is bullshit. But, f-. you know, there's a crowd around them that it's like watching him like have this conversation. So he's like, OK, fine, I'll do it. And when he does it, the scale slams downward. But as that was happening, a thief was going after Jigen's bag. 
and uh, he's able to shoo off the thief, but apparently that thief wasn't part of the whole gig because it was the monkey who comes in and grabs the bag and makes off with it. So Jigen's left with nothing but his revolver to his name. So in order to make some cash, he goes to a shop to sell it or pawn it, I guess. But he's told by the shop owner that, oh, yeah, this is worthless. This isn't worth anything. This old piece of crap. However, I've got a job for you if you want to make some money. And so he heads out to the desert. Jigen, uh, upon hearing the story of a peacock, um, goes, sounds pretty formulaic. Uh, and then the note here says, love you, Richard Epcar. Uh, c- explain, please. It's a great delivery by the voice actor. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, sounds guy, pretty yeah. formulaic. Yeah, it, it, it's funny that, well, for me, that Jigen only has uh, his gun because before going into this series, the only thing I knew about Lupin is that, uh, so the watch company Zenith uh, put out three limited editions based on watches that he wore in the original anime. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Because in the first episode, and I think the very last episode of that first run, there's a shot of him looking at his watch. And they're two different watches, but they're both very clearly Zenith El Primero's. So they've put out uh, limited editions over the last like two or three years. And like, I could drop one of the pictures in there. They look actually really nice. Yeah, Um, I do. Yeah. Nice. Especially, I I think the one that's like split halfway down, that's like a combo of the two is kind of neat. Oh, where it does like the black and white and it's like cut in a diagonal here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like. um, Essentially. Yeah, they basically split it down the middle, but uh. It's a very specific look. Uh, and it's very clear when you look at the pictures from that anime, like, oh, yeah, it literally says Zeno El Primero, Zenith El Primero, like written on the dial in one of those shots. So, yeah. So I was, I was thinking, like, why can't he just pawn his watch? But you never see you never see a watch on his wrist in any of these shots. Yeah, he's not a thief yet. He can't afford that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're not cheap. Yeah, you just linked us a ten thousand dollar watch. I, I like yeah. that it was implied that he bought it as a thief and did not steal it. <laughs> That's true. That's of true. all the members of this crew, Jigen is the most likely to go out, steal a bunch of things, and then turn that into money to just buy some expensive taste for himself. <laughs> well, back in the 60s and 70s, these probably weren't stupid expensive. But they weren't cheap. Probably is the fun word there. Yeah. That's fair. Um, I want you to know this cost me $7,500, Lupin, so don't (laughs) scratch it. And then, you know, they have to pawn it off for something, and then there's a whole side bit about getting it back, I'm sure. Come on, Jigen! We need the gas money, and it's not like I can't just get in here after dark. So anywho, um, Jigen lights a cigarette, which is... An extremely common thing of this episode. This dude chain smokes this entire episode. The box he has is clearly Pall Malls, too, which yeah. is a nice touch. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Um, and the whole wall goes up in flames. A pharaoh drawn on the wall with a uh, speaker to frighten him off. Um, but then the flames begin chasing him uh, towards a spike trap. Um, Jigen, of course, refuses to believe in a curse. So, of course, a golden sarcophagus shoots at him, um, but he splits it open uh, with his 
uh, bullets, I believe, to see uh, Lupin inside. It is very um, mousetrap-esque. It's a series of escalations until finally one shot on this thing turns it into, oh, yeah, it's the it's the cartoon guy. <laughs> yep. And then it all makes sense. Yep. This leads into both of the men holding a gun on each other. Uh, Lupin with his Walter PPK. PPK? PP7? I don't know. I'm not good at guns. It's a Walter because they call it out during the episode. Yeah, it's a, Walter's a German manufacturer. PPK, I think, is... Russian, British? I think. Yeah. Okay. I, I know one of those is a real gun. One of them is from a video game, and that's exactly why my brain confuses it. I think PPK is a real gun. Okay. <laughs> Look, I blame Rare. Speaking of the British. Well, the PPK is also a Walther. That's what I thought. Oh, I was thinking, you know what? Oh, yep, yep, that is a German company. Luger is what you're thinking of? Yeah, I was thinking Luger. and uh, Yeah, it's essentially, they they made a version of that. But the two of them start staring each other down, respective weapons in hand. And the first time they fire, a bat just dies in the crossfire. I guess it wandered right in between the bullets. However, Lupin hits a trap as he leaps down, and so now knives are flying through the room, both men having to shoot them down. This is enough that each knows the other's specific weapon is out of ammo, and this is where they call out everyone's guns. So it turns into a slugfest. In the process of brawling on this ledge, Lupin gets crushed under a rock trap, and Jigen gets away no longer with a torch. We go into the eye catches for this episode which are Fujiko's feet with painted nails, and then Lupin and Jigen's chin sneering at each other, which I'm probably going to use unless anyone has a better pick. It's a really good one. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think I have a better picture. Um, I do yeah. have a comment about the whole gun situation, though, and I think mm-hmm. it's just an extremely me focusing on this weird part, but um, I feel like it kind of disservices Jigen a bit because it's sold to me. Like, Jigen's supposed to be like, real good with gun and here's mm-hmm. lupin being basically as equally good with gun so lupin runs on cartoon logic if this were an actual thing that was going to be the final lupin scene lupin loses that duel but since this is not that obviously he is equals and has bullets that can counterbalance a stronger bullet <laughs> okay, I'll I'll accept yeah. this logic. That's a solid answer. Yeah, I. It's one of those. Don't think too hard about it. I mean, this wasn't a time for like cool gun stuff to happen, right? Is, or you know, th- like the super cool gun stuff, anyway. Right. That's just the one thing that points out to me. I feel like Jigen doesn't get a lot of like, isn't portrayed his best here. I don't think. No. Well, he is still coming up in the crew. That's true. Uh, I- yeah, I also think that, like, part of the problem is the editing choices they do, like, in this next section where it's sort of hard to follow what's going on exactly, and then they explain it to you afterwards. That's true. And I also thought, like, the bit with uh, the bit with the bat was kind of hard to follow at first as well. Yeah, it was clearly going to be a fake out, right? And so, But yeah, it wasn't signaled very well. But yeah, 
Jigen continues onwards. Uh, but now these enormous statue traps, you know, they're basically like giant Anubises are bringing large axes down around him. And like, this doesn't seem like a Lupin style plot, especially because they're like made out of stone, apparently. Yep. Um, and he's shooting them with his revolver. And the thing is, this spot, it's really confusing exactly what's happening, because sometimes it looks like these things that like they're, you know, blowing up as soon as he hits them. And sometimes like the bullet ricochets or like he doesn't get a good hit off. It's a little it's a little weird, but it's supposed to feel a little weird, at least to some degree. Like he he's noticing that something isn't right. But uh, for the second time, he is about to fall off the side of a cliff into nothingness. But uh, this time he manages to find a vine to pull himself back up. And uh, he's walking down a hallway. He sees uh, some hieroglyphs on the side and there's one of an owl. And he says, like, well, this art sucks. <laughs> like, just yes. <laughs> but uh, he enters a chamber that looks like the end of the road uh, because there's a empty sarcophagus on one side. Well, there's a there's a coffin on one side and like a man sized hole on the other in like a, like a little table. <laughs> So this would have been a burial chamber where you yeah. would prepare the body and then put it in the actual sarcophagus. Mm -hmm. I, I made a mistake writing it down as an empty sarcophagus. It is an empty wrap station. Yeah. I don't know the term for it. And a full sarcophagus. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, next to the sarcophagus is uh, the same scales that Jigen ran into with the same like little metal heart piece uh, next to it that he saw in the market with the little kid. And uh, he tries lifting it up with his hands, uh, the sarcophagus um, top, and it just won't move at all. And this is when Lupin catches up to him and puts a gun in his back. And uh, we, we find out that Lupin apparently uh, swapped his bullets like in the sh in the scuffle that they had. He swapped um, his normal bullets with exploding shells, which is why he was feeling weird while shooting the um, while shooting the um, the statues. And, then, and he also notes like, hey, you, you only gave me five, by the way. And he's like, look, they were hard to make. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can uh, only like sleight of hand so many. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Five doable. Six, you're pushing it. But didn't, um, I, maybe it was just me that saw it wrong, but didn't, like, Lupin pull his gun out from Jigen from, like, didn't it show that Jigen swiped Lupin's gun as well? Or am I misremembering so, this wrong? He did, and as a result of that, uh, Lupin pulls it out of his coat pocket during this scene. Okay, that that's what I thought. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, like, this is definitely, like, in the guns are cool uh, vibes here. Because, like, yeah, the shot where Jigen, after the statues, like, reloads his uh, gun with, like, normal, normal bullets. Like, you see the, the cylinder, you know, he clicks it in. And it's like, yeah, this is definitely some gun porn here. Yeah, it's the, it's like the, the hand-drawn, like, the only thing I can relate it to is, like, the mecha parts interlocking. It's It's the same <laughs> kind of feel. Real talk, like... The actual mechanics of a gun are actually very cool. <laughs> I agree with this. 
like taking a taking it apart and looking at all like it's just a bunch of like pieces of metal and springs like it's an exceptionally simple device it's just also like horrifying and what damage it could do <laughs> like have i spent a non zero amount of time seeing how a p90 magazine works because it has to flip the bullet yes <laughs> yeah 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 uh it's but and also like i don't know if it's just me but like i love the sounds of the metal sliding against each other and all the little pieces and just all of those sounds are just very pleasing to me but I think that's mostly because of video games. <laughs> I can see that. Just the forever of like sw- like switching back and forth between a gun and hearing like the same clicking animation. Yeah, like like pulling the slide, putting in the magazine or clip, whatever, whichever one's the right one. Magazine don't, is don't kill me. Yeah, magazine is <laughs> clip, clip goes in one. a magazine. That's right. The clip is the different thing. Yeah, it's the magazine. I'm going to unleash some cursed knowledge on the two of you. Have you ever seen the Internet Firearms Database? No. No? Sorry, Internet Movie Firearms Database. It is a wiki which is talking about the weapons that appear in various things and how accurate they are to real life. But it's somewhat infamous because among the pages on there, they start covering video games and... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whoever started doing their page on Far Cry 2 really got into it. Oh boy, I bet. Oh jeez. Yeah. Like gun fetishism is the thing I like do not understand and gel with and like makes me <laughs> recoil from the whole thing. But um uh guns can be fun, but also the culture around it is absolutely horrid. Agreed. Anywho, um so in this chamber, they're met with um, the scales again. And Jigen goes and explains, it's like, ah, well, this isn't going to work. And Lupin's like, no, 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 I totally got this. And he just kind of like picks up the heart, sets it down, and it balances fine. The coffin opens, and there's a mummy inside. And then they go to start moving the mummy from the sarcophagus to the other thing. And then the room... The wrapping table, yeah. The wrapping table. And then the room kind of starts flipping or, like, rotating, kind of like a cube on its Z-axis, um, making mm-hmm. it a challenge to get to the other, um, to get to the preparing table. And then there's scorpions, because why not? A lot, a <laughs> lot of scorpions. So many scorpions. Uh, you know, I, I do like what Lupin says here about why would you need a god to measure your sins? You already know what they are. <laughs> And on top of that, why not just, you know, enjoy yourself? Like, I feel like that's a it's a nice character touch, especially when we're talking about the themes of this particular episode. It's very amusing that Jigen spends so much time telling this story and running into it, and he's worried about it. He's trying to get out from under his dark past. He's worried Everyone looks at me and just sees the sins on my face. And Lupin's just like, I don't know. God knows what I did. Let's just give it a go. Yeah. And and it works in his favor, mm-hmm. which, I mean, of course, otherwise the show would be not fun. So, Right. Yeah, it's an interesting duality that they, they play with more. Um, especially, you know, after they fall into um, a whirlpool of sand. And then uh, Fujiko uh, shows up above. 
and there's this interesting <laughs> duality of how each each of them kind of see and perceive uh, Fujiko, which is a fun bit. Um, you know, except for Jigen, because Fujiko immediately starts talking shit about Jigen's dick. She's size shaming him. And then Lupod's like just calls him like, at least in the in the subs, like itsy bitsy for the rest of the episode. Oh, no, 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 no. Fujiko in the dub shows up and says, oh, good to see you again, gunsmith. Or should that be mini Magnum? Ooh, bird. Yes. Extremely rude thing to do. <laughs> and this actually sets Lupin against him all of a sudden when they've been relatively pleasant. Uh-huh. Because he's bad at like, yeah. wait a second, did you get to sleep with her? I was going on this quest to sleep with her. <laughs> you know, I I am very... Hmm. It, this is, is one of those things where, like, it's really touchy to be like wow the woman who sleeps with everyone won't sleep with me <laughs> kind of situation <laughs> with this and i like Ugh. the funnier thing is we know she didn't sleep with him she just yeah. saw him when she was stealing from him <laughs> well i think also she got on his lap during uh when he he she takes the gun from him in that episode too true but it's we definitely know that's not the case. However, she's perfectly happy to set the two of them at each other's throats because she took a safer route through the uh-huh. pyramid from another grave robber's logs, but she can't get past this final trap alone. This whirlpool leads to what she refers to as a juicer, which relies on blood. When it's wetted, the whirlpool drops and exposes the peacock statue. So... She just tells the two of them, ta-ta, and heads down to the chamber that she knows the peacock will be in. Uh, by the way, Sybil, uh, like, how much would you have paid to have Richard Epcar say, "I, sorry, I'm a grower? Uh, plenty. And if that, dude, if that dude ever gets on Cameo, you better believe I will spend a stupid... I'm <laughs> like Googling it right now. Do, 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 just checking. No, I don't want to unlock 10% off. I mean, maybe you do. <laughs> oh, shit. Richard Epcar is on here. $100 to start. So really, with that 10%, you're already at 90. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like how I like how his credits are voice actor. Mortal Kombat, Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> the duality Hearts? of video games. <laughs> okay, so what I'm learning is that we are definitely getting a Richard Epcar intro for one of our shows if uh, ah! if we ever break big. Oh, okay. Yeah, his his reel of pictures on here is pretty good. I didn't know he was a couple of the Xehanorts. Or Ansoms, or whatever. Alright. Ah, that would check out. <laughs> Sorry, we just derailed the whole podcast just j- trying to make a dumb joke. That's alright. <laughs> that is what we do here. That is that is on brand. So, the two men uh, are basically finally able to introduce one another to themselves as they have a gun pointed over this juicer. So, Jigen obviously recognizes the scion of the Lupin family. 
uh, we will later have him introduce himself. And neither of them wants to shoot the other, especially because Jigen really does not want to give Fujiko the satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And then all the scorpions from above drop down. <laughs> so Fujiko, who is waiting down in the chamber, sees the reservoir in the shape of the peacock begin to fill. And it's filling with blue scorpion blood. Lupin explains as the two walk through a now open staircase. And and this comes with like a bit that we didn't mention earlier where there's like the red scorpion, sorry, the red peacock had like gives fortune or whatever. And the blue peacock uh, offers death. And so like there was a brief moment. Of, oh, shit. The blue peacock. That's bad. It turns out, no, actually, it's it's actually much better. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, the a uh, a door opens up, uh, basically like the whole carving, like that whole wall shifts up and the statue is revealed. And it is like a really massive piece of Alexandrite. Or should I say, call it Alexandrite now or should I? Just... It's Alexandrite. We knew it was Alexandrite. It's like torso sized. Yeah, it is huge and very, like, the carving on it must be absolutely insane. But uh, at this point, uh, more walls open up and even more scorpions pour in. Oh, actually, these aren't scorpions. These are, uh, this is a different bug. And I don't know what it is. They're kind of like spiders, but they kind of have like these little sticks, stick antennae things. Let's just call them uh, fucked up scarabs. It's Egypt. They're fucked up. Yeah. I was going to say antlion. Mm. Because I think they mentioned that before somewhere. Oh, when they're when they're in the the sand pit, I think. Gotcha. Okay. But anyway, yeah, bunch of fucked up bugs uh come in and they like they're crawling up like Fujiko's leg and like Lupin's trying to shoot them and it's just completely useless. Like this is this is basically the scarab swarm in the mummy. If you know that. Have people watched The Mummy these days? Like, is that a thing? Yeah, no, that's that's obviously getting a lot of a revival, especially with the Fraser Renaissance. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, like, Fraser's been back in the news recently. Uh, I feel like that first movie still fucks. The first two are pretty okay. Yeah, I have not watched the third one. The Scorpion King? Oh, The Scorpion King is hilariously yeah, bad. Is. Because it's a pre- pre-Dwayne Johnson The Rock trying to get by but without them knowing how to make use of his charisma yet, and it has some of the most hilariously bad CGI and editing of the area. Of the era. I've seen the CGI. Like, I think I saw like a video of someone breaking down how terrible that was. Like, the lighting is terrible, the animations are terrible, everything. Um, that movie feels like it was kicked out the door to die, especially given one of the climactic scenes clearly has someone running in from out of shot at one point. Yeah. And then just screaming. And it's they're supposed to be in the frame, like very visible. You can tell whatever they put into the final cut is not how that scene is supposed to go. God, I should watch it just just to see how terrible it is. It's worth it if it's free on an HBO or a Netflix. Don't yeah, give it. Yeah, I wouldn't pay for it. No, I wouldn't. No, hell no. I'm not gonna pay Jeff Bezos just to rent this. <laughs> it's got to be free somewhere. It, yeah, yeah. 
But anyway, this is uh, where like Fujiko ends up setting the room ablaze with like a torch trying to fend them off. And Lupin's like, well, this is a trap, right? And, you know, trap builders always put a secret exit in it because I'm a cartoon character. I mean, because they want to make sure they don't get trapped in <laughs> the trap themselves and get extorted to like by other people to tell them how to fix it or like how to like break whatever security. So he notices that the smoke is going out through a specific spot and Jigen then shoots the wall open to go in that direction. Uh, they pass through, but uh, it's just an air vent. However, in th they can see some like sunlight coming through, mm -hmm. but uh, there's a keyhole to the side and it is in the perfect shape of the peacock. Yep. So really uh, the, the two of them kind of pressure Fujiko to have to use the peacock so they can get out. Um, Lupin makes the comment that um, because of how the, the rock works, you know, it's only um, the treasure in the cave with the torchlight where it is a symbol of death otherwise because you, you can't get out without having to leave it behind. So then the three leave. Um, Fujiko kind of just is like, well, bye. See you later. Mm -hmm. And um, Lupin and Jigen draw on each other. Um, but it looks like uh, they're friends now. Um, and they're not going to kill each other this time. They're going to save it for later. Um, Jigen still hates Fujiko. And um, you should have left her down there. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you left her down there, then you'd be stuck, too. <laughs> probably. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, but he's just like barrier alive Lupin. terrible mm -hmm. awful vibes that one <laughs> he's not wrong that's true so then uh jigen finally introduces himself to lupin at the end and um as fujiko rides off uh lupin's like hey what about uh that smithsonian one we can go get that stone and she's like nope stakes are raised now and, but we've uh, already established that she's a size queen, so. <laughs> no shaming in this podcast. Or, I'm just or I guess the character. you can. It's fine. <laughs> like I'm, I, I'm judging her for it, but that's true of her. <laughs> that's fair. <sighs> no, I, I actually really like that touch of the the red and blue uh, peacock being like thematically like yeah this is a poison pill so to speak like yeah you can win this but it's going to kill you yeah I, I think it's it's like the most artful the show is with its like plots <laughs> at least so far yeah yeah they, they definitely played into it well and then there's yeah. there's this line at the end which i'm pretty sure is supposed to mean something but i couldn't <laughs> put it together where um where lupin sees a peacock and I don't remember the exact line. It's something like, you know, Fujiko, you know, even even a peacock can just fly. I thought it was can't fly. I thought it was can fly. It is can fly. Yeah, it is like even like if it really tries, even a peacock can fly. Got it. OK. Yeah. yeah. So I'm like, ah, I'm not we're trying to say something here. I'm not going to say that I didn't tune out a little during this final closing scene. So that's my bad. Yeah. I mean, like, look, we, we, hey, look, 
Yeah, we saw her naked, but we got through a whole, another whole episode where Fujiko doesn't fuck. Hooray! <laughs> Let's go to episode six, <laughs> Prison of Love. I know, I know. That was kind of a setup just to knock him down, huh? Oof. I hope you like Yuri cliches because we're at an all-girl school and, oh man, there's a new teacher, Miss Fujiko Mine. We, we, we can't play this off after doing Flip Flappers and that whole episode about this. Like, we're, we're back in it. We're back in it, but we're playing it straight. I legitimately had a bet with myself that this would be your favorite episode of the season. It turns out I'm wrong oh, already, yeah. but... Well, th- there is... It's so much... It's so much. Well, it's not the so much that's the problem. Well, okay, okay. There's so much plot, but then there's so much other shit <laughs> within that plot. It's just an escalation uh, of oh no. Yeah, there's a lot of oh no's. <laughs> yeah. All the young women on campus love Fujiko, and we actually see that she is running what appears to be a literature class. Uh, she is teaching them goat. If you do not know, he is a classic German author, most casually known for Faust, but nothing can be taken from this because this mm-hmm. episode does not quote that work, instead choosing some of his bodier material. So, one student, I, I'm going to butcher this, but Isolde? Isolde? Isolde, yeah. Isolde, okay. First try. She is more subtly into her. She's like the, the, the gloomy, quiet one, and, you know, only tails down to classes. her shoulders. Yeah, yeah, she she has what you would call protagonist syndrome. <laughs> Another Yuri work. Uh, but yeah, Fujiko notices her attention. And uh, there's this one bit where like, you know, Fujiko has her book open and a butterfly flies into the room and Fujiko like snaps the book on it, uh, killing it, which should have been like fucking a red flag. Hello. <laughs> Okay, this episode is Mari Okada as fuck. Because this is basically a lot of the themes of her series, Oh Maidens in Your Savage Season, knocked Ah, down into a one episode. Because that is a series about teen girls who are figuring out their own various sexualities and challenges related to it while in a literature club at their high school, which is trying to discuss works that seem mature, but also, like, the club leader is so incredibly unable to grapple with this that she refuses to say the word sex. Like, they have to come up with a metaphor for it. Uh, I think the one they go with early on is S.E. Cross, because that way they don't have to spell it out. Another one is kind of figuring out she's actually into girls. Another has a thing with the boy next door who she's grown up with, and then she accidentally walks in on him jerking off one day, and she's like, oh my god, he does that? Mm -hmm. So all of that energy is going into this all-girls school story that relies so much on literature and young lust. And we haven't mentioned it on Mike, but I've been doing a little more research into Mario Kata since the season started. 
Mm-hmm. And I need to find a way to read her autobiography, which I don't know if it's in English. Some of the stories in it from reviews are pretty wild. Like the <laughs> fact that Mario Kata nearly got murdered by her mother as a teenager. And just stopped going to school because she was trying to turn her appearance and personality around to be more of a productive member of society. And her friends told her, don't be someone you're not, Mari. That's terrible. And then she just stopped going to school as a result of this. So basically was a delinquent, yeah. She was a delinquent, but a delinquent who just kept fucking reading English literature. I mean, They're everybody's got to have their hobby. Very... Yeah. Now, talk about protagonist syndrome. <laughs> it explains so much about her writing and all her literary illusions and the way she comes at sexuality just based on how you imagine she grew up and interacted with yeah. the topics. It's wild. Yeah. It's, it's funny how much this hits all of the class s like even the the literature and the the girl school setting like so much of this is really classic early class s stuff and just because i know you were not around for that carrot class s is a european inspired style of yuri that is basically just like the all girls school where everyone has those uniforms and there's that specific kind mm-hmm. of trappings to it and also, it's a phase you grow out of as you become a woman. Yeah. All, like, really, would you say, like, really gentle romance tropes. <laughs> gotcha, yeah. I, I will be the first to admit that my Yuri knowledge is extremely low, and I'll probably ask Matt for recommendations afterwards. <laughs> oh, I have plenty. <laughs> have he you listened to this? <laughs> I was about to say, like, uh, like, well, you know, there's the whole season we did about flip flowers, but I don't know if I would suggest that. <laughs> Such an interesting. That is show. the chaos season. That is the chaos season. That is something else from having listened to to some of that and being intrigued from it. Oh, I think it's worth watching. As I said on the show watch. before, it's only 13 episodes. It's just as long as this show. That's true. <laughs> and it's only really rough for four of them. <laughs> also true. Uh, so anyway. Things are like, okay, if you've seen this kind of thing before, you know what the setup is. But things get a little dicier and a little messier when, like, okay, so there's the Queen Bee Girl, right? And her little posse. And she, Queen Girl, uh, the Queen Bee, has a crush on Fujiko, clearly. And, like, has been going up to her and trying to get her attention. And... She goes up to her to do a confession and Fujiko just cuts it off. But then uh, I believe the girl initiates the kiss first. Yes. Like yes. she kisses Fujiko and Fujiko's like, oh, well, I'll guess I'll have a little bit of fun and basically pulls the same move she did in episode one where she grabs her and shoves her tongue down the girl's throat. And it is extremely uncomfortable. It is so uncomfortable. She it is goes, so uncomfortable. She goes extremely into it with like, there's only a line here in the note, but I feel like it could be paragraphs of just like how, how wrong and how much she goes into it. It is. This is the first kiss in citrus. <laughs> if you know your Yuri. I mean, the only thing I know about citrus is everybody's. Well, the only thing I Not know from citrus fuck, yeah. is that from what I've heard from people in my circle that nothing ever happens. 
That's not true. But oh, like, I thought you were going to say the fact that they're not blood related. No, yeah, they're also not blood related. I, I, <laughs> I bet it's glossed over by most people anyway. God. Citrus is so funny because what everybody like, I would say the worst fan. I'm going to call them the worst fans. I'm calling you out if this is you. Like, if all you're waiting is for them to fuck, it yes, nothing happens in the show. <laughs> but, but like, and it's so funny because there there's a new series now. They made a sequel series called Citrus Plus, and the very first thing they do is they say. Well, spoilers for that, I guess, if you care about this at all. Uh, like, all right, we're engaged now. We're going to be married. But let's start a relationship from scratch so we don't have the expectation we're going to fuck in episode one or in this series at all. <laughs> so those people are probably still extremely mad that, quote unquote, nothing happens in Citrus. Well, Fuchiko going into this is 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 wrong on many levels. Yes. Yeah. And like going into like the, like the push forward the like moving in with the leg and pushing against the other student etc like she she pulls away and the girl's like into it yeah so i the it does like the the saliva pull at the end and everything yeah yeah no this is i mean look she's an adult that's a child not okay right <laughs> it was never going to be okay right. <laughs> but it could have been worse yeah but also i have questions about this later <laughs> Like, I want to come back to this later. That's also true. Mm-hmm. So uh, during this, um, Fujiko notices that, um, uh, how do you pronounce her game name again? I- Isole? Isole. Isole. Um, sees this attempt, you know, because Isole seems to be, also has a crush on Fujiko and is doing like some letter writing or some notes or something mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. It's is. Like poetry or whatever. Right. So, so yeah, Isolay is kind of like writing down her feelings or doing an assignment, maybe like a diary thing about like, oh, I'm, you know, I want Fujiko to notice me, etc., etc. Um, and then Fujiko notices this, and then she begins playing into this with her, and kind of starting to spend like time with her, and like slowly working into possibly a relationship. It gets confusing. I'm holding my hands up and shrugging. You can't see it. There's a huge <laughs> montage here, and I have no idea how much time has passed. Right. Like, is this like a week, a month? Is this the same afternoon? It's hard to tell. Everyone's wearing the same clothes. But then again, that's anime. Right. And uniforms. And you, and well, of course, there's the uniform. But even Fujiko's wearing the same stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, it goes into like this. Um, Isolay is like, it was something like a dream. Uh, but in mm-hmm. the end, was it a dream or was it a nightmare? And I think there is a shot that we see that she's wearing a pendant around her neck, like a gold pendant with a little, um, I don't know what you would call inlay. Re- inlay, yeah, like a stone inlay. Right. And uh, Fujiko has made eyes at it. So clearly that's part of the scheme. Because yeah. this entire time I'm wondering, what is she doing here? <laughs> we don't know yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is where she starts commenting on the pendant, yeah. And it is a memento of Isolde's father, who passed months prior. This is where Fujiko does start turning on the charm with the girl. But in the distance, we see that you call her the Queen Bee. I just refer to her as Blondie because yeah. the, she doesn't have a name. The most interesting thing about yeah. her is her golden locks. Blondie has a posse, mm-hmm. and they are not thrilled by seeing the little bookworm get picked for this. So, 
they try to mean girls her and hack her pigtails off. But the episode's twist is hinted at when we see Isolde on the ground and her face changes. If you actually mm-hmm. catch the eye, you might figure out the trick. So Fujiko is in her room just enjoying herself, lounging in lingerie and drinking some wine. But then Isolde, Isolde shows up at the door, dressed tattered and hair torn, and she comes in saying, teach me. And Fujiko says, teach me what? And she says, how to kiss. The acapella version of the track from Jigen's episode is playing. This is Elegy 1. Okay. But, okay, so they start canoodling, and it's uncomfortable. Yes. Yes, it is. Because it's a more sensual canoodling than the other one. And Fujiko is going on from the things from her lesson that she read off, saying, like, women never show themselves in their natural form. They are not so vain as men who conceive themselves to be always amiable enough, just as nature had, has produced them. And then, apparently, like, two more lines in this novel later, there's a line about, I mean, so we put this in here, she immediately began to play her part with the Jew? Okay, so... What? The context on this scene, which was incredibly funny when I looked it up, it is from William Meister's Apprenticeship, and it is just a bunch of little... The the way I would describe them is theater brats wandering around and having these artful conversations with each other. And then one of them decides, hey, we should all just continue wandering the countryside, but we should all play the part of a different role and pretend we're travelers who don't know each other. And so... They all assign each other roles, including one of them, who is only referred to as the pedant, becomes the Jew. Oh, I mean, that sounds like a nice fit. That makes sense to me. (laughs) It's just just so... (laughs) Like, there's this very lovely quote which we go into, and then I just kept reading a little (laughs) more and went, what? No, I mean, like, look, I was... I don't think it's going to make it to the podcast, but literally last recording session, I was like, yeah, yeah, we Jews, we love laws and writing laws and interpreting laws. That's kind of our thing. So, yeah, beat it. Very, very uh, apt. Actually. I mean, that's that's the whole purpose of a rabbi versus a priest is, yeah, uh-huh. no, you're supposed to be arguing with God because I don't know. And arguing with each other. Like, it, it's still so funny to me that, like, one of the most famous religious texts is literally just a bunch of uh, rabbis disagreeing with each other throughout the ages. Like, that's Judy as a baby. <laughs> one of my favorite extras, I am the bitch who buys all the Criterion releases of films she can. This is why I have four copies of Videodrome, among other things. Uh, that's the most you thing. Yes. That and Hellraiser. They put out a very nice edition of Uncut Gems last year. God, man, I can never watch that movie again. It, it was just, it's just, it's just an anxiety attack in real time. Oh, yeah, I that's mean, the Safety. that's the Safety brothers. You should definitely oh, yeah. not watch, um... Daddy Long Legs. Anyway, there's, so the Criterion Collection will usually add, like, film scholars and essays and things in the booklet with the work, so you have a reason not to throw it away with the packaging. And in Uncut Gems... One thing they publish in full in it is the staff of a New York Jewish newspaper discussing their review of the work 
and just uh-huh. the frankness they have in some of the parts where like one of them is just going okay but can't we call this anti-semitic because we all know this guy we've all <laughs> met this guy He's a real person. And, and you could say he's not completely representative of like for for the record, I would imagine most Jews won't hire thugs to like collect on money on a friend because they loaned loan the dude some money. That's probably not a thing that's hap- not happened in my family. Yeah, but the, like it's just such an incredibly frank discussion. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite things they've ever included with a movie because it's funny. It's all of them trying to figure out do we like this? This is good, but like, is this hurtful to us? But also, we all know this guy. Yeah. <laughs> it's just such a long, frank discussion, and it's exquisite in its uncomfortable nature, and also all of them getting in cheap shots on each other the whole time. That's great. Yeah, that's very on brand. And uh, yeah, Uncut Gems rules, and I probably will never watch it again as well. <laughs> Oh, it's it's become one of my oh yeah oh yeah we're gonna have a bad time movies I love it. God, that, I saw that in theaters. Oh yes, it was it was the last movie I saw in theaters before the shutdown. Actually, <laughs> before I saw it in happened. theaters, uh-huh. I saw it with my mother a second time just to watch her reactions. Yeah, no, I oh. love that movie. Oh, I like during the scene where KG is like stuck in the box, like. I was so stressed. I actually had to walk out and like go to the bathroom, like mentally reset before going back in. Yeah. The first time that's happened. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like the thing is like to me, like, and this just speaks to me. It's just like the, I didn't want to see the conversation where like the dude says, Oh yeah, I don't have the ring. I pawned it. <laughs> yeah. Like it's gone. Like I could get it back, but I pawned it. And it was just like, Oh fuck. Shit's going to go down. And I guess I don't think that, I think he ends up talking his way out of it as what, I guess he what does, happens. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I wasn't. I didn't see that rest of that scene. Yes. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. Good fucking movie. Yeah. Yep. It is a movie I have watched once and will never watch again, and had to take multiple mm-hmm. breaks during it. But uh, <laughs> s- solid film. Yeah. Yeah. Great fucking soundtrack too. And it's just infinitely quotable in the worst ways. Oh, oh, this is how I win is never going away. Well, also, holy shit, I'm going to come. Oh, that one. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. And yeah, yeah. That's, a, that, that's, a, that's a great reaction gif right there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and for what it's worth, I entirely understand why Adam Sandler said, if I am given no recognition for the work I put in on this role... I am going to create the most horrible violence upon film. And he has said he's working on that threat. Hooray. Hooray? Well, he got screwed over at the Oscars. That's true. That's true. So, uh, just just to dial things back. So, Fujiko is making out with a girl who's supposedly a student. But it turns out Oscar's voice comes out instead of uh Isolde's voice and he knees Fujiko in the stomach because he was in disguise possibly the whole time possibly the whole time Unsure. the whole time of this episode and, and this is the first big twist of the episode it's a lot <laughs> yeah it's a lot so after 
uh, Fujiko gets need. We cut to a uh, three months earlier time card, and um, Oscar and Zanagawa are discussing the death of Zole's father, who was a physicist. Um, physicist. That's what I said, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, half of his final uh, theorem had been stolen, and the other, but the other half, since um, it was split. And it's like it's like the decoder ring situation. They literally say the Da Vinci Code later. <laughs> they do literally say the Da Vinci Code later. Um, so oh. the other half was split, and it is likely with the daughter Isole. Oscar's like, "Don't worry, I'm on this. Um, I'll handle this." Uh, he's clearly planning to cross dress already, but then another officer comes in with uh, a letter Lupin has sent, um, a letter of challenge. And the instant um, Zenigawa reads this, he goes from, yeah, whatever, to, oh, shit, someone said the L word. Let's go. He throws his hat on immediately and is like, all right, I'm going out the door. Yeah, he's like, I now now immediately care about this. (laughs) But Oscar's like, I I see you with the the L word reference there. Mm -hmm. Very, very pointed. (laughs) Um, I think also uh, during this, we should note Zenigawa was reading a newspaper about, um, I think, a a, uh, a theft uh, Fujiko did in the newspaper as well that relates into this. They are pretty sure she is the one who stole the first half of the theorem. Right. That's why Oscar's like, I'll get involved and take her down. Right. Yeah, because that that's Oscar's rival in mm-hmm. in multiple meanings. All of yes. them, really. Um, Oscar still insists that he can handle this. Um, so he does. He's like, don't worry, I'll I'll do this. I'll I'll catch a lupin. I'm gonna do all the things. Um, so he goes and shows up to meet the real Isole and strips her of her uniform after like just being like, take off your clothes. And like it's it's not great. It's no. a soul. Yeah. 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 And like, look, you could have just ordered another outfit. Or it's like, not gonna fit you. You could have like explained the plan. Like, there was probably like a secondary uniform somewhere. Since everyone is talking around the events, yeah. Oscar shows up at Isolde's apartment, rips her top open, and says, "You want this to be kept safe, don't you?" Uh, pushes her back inside, yanks her pendant off and begins taking his clothes off before the girl who is prostrate on the floor. Yeah. It's, it's not extremely good. uncomfortable. Part yep. one of yeah. many. Yeah, yikes. Actually, this is part two uncomfortable shit. Uh, right well, p- well, part three, if we count three, the first kiss. Three, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. That's three. I mean, let's just ramp it up, because we now cut back to the present, where Fujiko is naked, tied to the bed in moonlight, and Oscar taunts her unconscious form pouring wine over her bound body. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, There are more goat quotes here, and Oscar's goal is to keep his word to Zenigata, using Fujiko as bait for Lupin, but he's also absolutely going to get his revenge, because he's still calling her a spittoon, a pig woman, and everything over her unconscious body. 
And then we cut to the episode break, where our eye catches are Fujiko's painted fingernails, and then Oscar's hand holding the torn wig. Yeah. So, so also with this part, I, I think it's here where it happens. I'm, I was, I've gotten very confused by what Oscar is trying to do because, like, at some point, like before, like he starts doing his normal, normal Fujiko calling her a spittoon and so on and so forth. There's like this part of like admiration and jealousy first before it that he kind of goes into. It's kind of like it's mixed between I I hate you because you stole what I wanted, which was Zenigata, <laughs> uh, well, mm-hmm. his dick specifically. And uh, but also he kind of sounds like he's falling for her, too. Right. That's how I kind of read it, too. I'm like, I'm like, are you also into her? Question mark. Oscar is decidedly not into her, but it is a jealousy that by being a woman, she could have what he seems unable to. Okay. Okay. I could kind of see that as well. Yeah, I can see that. It's a little messy in how it's presented. I mean, the whole thing's messy. Yeah. The character of Oscar is not what you would call tasteful queer representation oh absolutely not. but again <laughs> this series is very pulp that yep. does align yep yep yep, yep. I, I agree with that but yeah like my my takeaway here was also like what did did oscar get tempted enough by her as well so there's two angles now <laughs> that, i don't that think oscar, oscar would stick his dick in a woman with a gun to his head probably right yeah probably correct but the fact that it made me consider it was also not good especially given the context in the moment i mean the animation is also showing her form covered in red wine which we see stain the bed in a way that looks like blood pouring out so we're not being subtle with metaphor no but anyway when we come back from the eye catch uh we're back in trippy land where Fujiko, like like little Fujiko, like a young Fujiko, is sitting at the end of a very Mad Hatter's tea party table. Uh, everything's in blue with ornate lettering. And like, you know, they're, they're showing like quotes up in like, you know, different batches where like it says, uh, Fujiko Mine, rapture and despair. You are comprised of all these elements. Fujiko, I shall record everything of you. Blood and tears and saliva. Everything of the tale called Fujiko Mine. Yes, your natural form. So it looks cool. It's a, the, the music here is super interesting because instead of going for that 70s, like, yeah, exploitation, funk, maybe a little bit of orchestral vibe at times, it's going straight up like 80s FM synth or like PPG. Oh, no, I would I would put this down as music concrete. Yeah, yeah. But like the, the soundscape of it is what jumped out to me. It's it's very digital and crystalline and chimey um, in the synth sounds, which is definitely not super 70s. No, this is like 50s, 60s to me. This is rough. Really? And especially as the feedback begins coming into it. Um, Music Concrete was sort of a predecessor to modern electronic music in a lot of ways. It was basically, mm-hmm. it's kind of like a abrasive counterpart 
because there was not really an electronic tech for music yet. So it's rough, it's artificial, it's jarring. Infamous bits here. Uh, if you want to actually learn a lot about this, uh, there is a now updated from Flash for the first time in decades <laughs> HTML5 device called Isker's Guide to Electronic Music, which basically yeah. charts out all of this if you want to use it as a starting ground. Or the book Energy Flash is a wonderful nearly thousand page history of the genre that cites major works. Wonderful things both, if you have any interest in this topic, and Keep it open near something that you can look up songs on. Yeah, I, I checked out that old site like a handful of years ago. And yeah, that that's a super, I mean, very, very old website design at the time. It was like very vintage of, a, you know, and like they only had genres going up to like 2005 or so, I want to say at the time. Yeah, around 2020, during the pandemic, I found out that it had been upgraded. It's moved mm. over to HTML5 and it now covers more modern things like it gets yeah. into dream pop and uh -huh. all that kind of yeah i should check it out school. like I, I love that they have like three examples of each genre whenever it's split uh, yep that's exactly good. it it gives you yeah. clips to hear hey here's some of the major works that you might recognize characteristics of <laughs> and i finally got the name of like oh wow this is why i hate this genre <laughs> it's like no thank happy hardcore no thank you <laughs> Aw, I like happy hardcore in limited it's, numbers. Yeah, it's it's too much. It's uh, it's it's like peak nineties like optimism, but put into club music that makes me want to go insane. It, it turns out if you give me uh, Gabba with some ecstasy over it, yeah, I'm down. So anywho, not knowing anything about anything that just happened music-wise, <laughs> um, Fujiko sits beneath a throne with peacock feathers. Um, it shatters and she chokes as a stained glass rose shatters. Um, a typewriter in neon begins uh, dancing. From off-screen, hands are taking hairs and drools and samples of her. Um, these scientists... People, things are all clad in owl masks as a strange uh, feedback plays. Um, then she awakes, abound and covered in wine. Um, the window opens and she recognizes a figure. Um, I believe before this as well. I don't think we we noted it, but during like at the end of the scene with Oscar, there's a shot out the window where it shows like this robotic owl out there or an owl that has a camera in it that it looks like. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that is before the break. And you're right. I did miss that. Um, which kind of, um, signals who, who might be showing up here. Uh, sure. <laughs> Mentioning the owl was a good catch. Thank you. I mm -hmm. missed that. So it is the next morning. In class, everyone is missing their teacher because Miss Fujiko Mine has not shown up to teach. You would think the administration would go to her apartment, but no. Isolde is no longer pretending, but Oscar has signaled for Zenigata to come. Lupin then pulls aside Isolde for the pendant, 
But in the chapel, he talks to the girl, letting her know, no, Fujiko was just out for this thing. You, you can't be... Well, she didn't steal this from me, but she did steal something more precious. Was it your heart? No, more precious than that. And Lupin gives a... <laughs> and before he can do anything, he says he'll keep her safe. And then the curtain behind them is drawn, and the meat girls are now toting Uzis and uh -huh. fire on the duo. What uh -huh. the hell? What the fuck? So, so like, is this something that Asker set up? Is this just something as, like, a defense for the all-girls all school? Like... I thought this was Oscar in this scene. I don't think the real Day is there, right? Yeah, she's not. I'm I'm saying it because that is the disguise. Oscar will strip it in a moment, but Lupin is treating it as Isol. Yeah, yeah, and he's like really into the idea that Fujiko uh, bedded this teenager. Mm -hmm. Meh. Meh. Granted, we will also come to find out that he knows. So, oh, so he's playing along. Yeah, he's playing along. He's already rescued yeah. Fujiko at this point. Right, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he knows. A lot of pieces moving around on this board. But uh, I would say, I mean, yeah, because after Lupin gets locked into the... Well, it's not a... Well, this is... It's a garden, a greenhouse. It's kind of hard to... Yeah. Yeah. It's like a greenhouse. Like, Lupin gets locked in, and, like, that whole bit of, like, the girls are, like really like like worshiping easel day like right like they like get on their knees and stuff and they're like oh my god thank you so much for we were we were only willing to help and i think oscar's still in um in disguise at this point how i've interpreted this and let me just run through this and see if this reads true to y'all I mentioned earlier in the episode when they hack away at the wig, you mm -hmm. see the face go from Isolde to Oscar on the ground. Right. Yeah. I think this is where Oscar straight up goes, fuck you, I'm a cop, and gets these girls in on it, which also mm. explains their kind of fear of him at the end of this scene, where even though they're all armed, the, the way they take it is... Uh, hey, yeah, no, we're we're even now, right? We're cool. It's not yeah. worship. It's like a we're even, right? Right? Desperation. Yeah. Like this is this is one of those things where I wow, this actually makes things even more uncomfortable now that I think about it. Um, because you know a lot of the cutting up the skirt thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but also like I was wondering, does the blonde girl actually have a crush on Fujiko like was that genuine or was that part of the plan and the question would be how far yeah I read that as legitimate uh-huh I think the blonde girl is being an actual mean girl up until they actually make a move on Oscar and that's when it flips so I the thing that reads weird then is that that girl probably would not just throw away her crush on Fujiko just because of that right because like or like maybe she would go along because that's the you know best thing to protect herself but she would be like oh I'll let Fujiko you know, Miss Fujiko get away or something right like there's there's just another angle to this that I feel like gets kind of glossed over 
That's fair. I mean, I also i I didn't read it as like a fear thing. I maybe that's just me reading the the worst of it. But I'm like, oh, they're all just into Oscar now, aren't they? They kind of are. <laughs> they're all blushing. There's a lot of blushing. Yeah, it's hard to read, and nothing is spoken outright in the episode. So I yeah. don't know if there's really a more valid take on this. Yeah, and like, there's always the question of how long has Oscar been. Um, impersonating Isolday and like you know how much of the real one have we seen in the school my take is none yeah my, my guess was none yeah I agree but with that. uh it, it just makes it so messy and also like the guns are just silly like pulling out the guns is so over the yeah, top they all just have Uzis yeah I'd like that they also have like the foldable stock to them mm-hmm. yeah I, I would imagine that they all um they're full of blanks or something, right? Because why would Oscar put himself into that much danger knowing he was going to be shot at? Possibly. All he really wanted was to get was to push Lupin into a place he could trap him. I just choose to believe that those were already there from the school, and that's just how they <laughs> determine. men. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, this is what definitely takes it into the, oh, this is exploitation film vibes. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out four teenage girls with Uzis just raining bullets everywhere does have some real pulp Roger Corman yeah. 50s cinema vibes, yeah. It it could potentially own. I don't know if it owns here. Probably not. Yeah, <laughs> so no, I'd say no. Probably not. There's not there's not like a non yikes way that this plays out. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Lupin has been locked inside a greenhouse or garden and gassed. We discover the girls were working with Oscar, and then Zenigata radios in, just in time for Fujiko to audibly take him out on Mike. I fucking knew immediately what was going on here. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, Lupin already freed Fujiko, uh, who had palmed the real pendant the night prior, uh, and she... um, uh, so apparently the second half of this paper was written down in a tiny, tiny, tiny sheet of paper and hidden inside this pendant. And in that pendant, it was has like some ridiculous lock on it that if it gets tampered with, it'll destroy it and just ruin everything. and It'll be gone forever. And she knows that he is the one that Oscar's the one who did the did the trapping and wants to get the cipher in order to crack it. So what she says is that the pendant that was on Oscar's neck is very fresh, meaning it can't be the one that was on the real easel. So it has to be something Oscar designed. Mm. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And the funnier thing too, is that the fake that she swapped it for, uh, like has like, uh, Oh, the skeleton skull. Laughing skull. It's so that kind of rules though. I kind of want that. (laughs) I want that to exist. That is pretty sick. It probably did from some Etsy shop closer to when this came out. Yeah, yeah. But like, I, I, I am down for that sort of, you could say, perversion of a classical art form to some degree. Oh, yeah. It turns it from this icon of a saint into some Day of the Dead festivity shit. It kind of owns. But anyway, do you know who also gets owned right now? Zenigata, because she is torturing him supposedly, over the radio. And he's seeing lights like, oh my god, I'm dying, I'm dying. And 
this just breaks Oscar and who like just immediately gives up his goal and surrenders the code to uh, ensure the inspector's safety. We cut to a little bit later where Zenigata is supposedly freed and Oscar is waiting for him to show up at the school so they can t- at least take away a Lupin. And it turns out that Zenigata doesn't know shit about this whole torture thing. Zenigata has no idea what uh, Oscar's talking about. It's totally fine the whole time. And we learn that Fujiko freed Lupin in return and left a fuck you butterfly as a taunt in the garden. It's so good. Yeah. <gasps> Such a nice touch. Um, we then cut to the two thieves opening their prize and making a deal to um, to split the reward or whatever, whatever they're going to do with this to get money out of it. Um, and then we hear about how Fujiko tricked Oscar. Um, she reveals it is the recording of the time she fucked him in the in, um, interrogation room where she fingered his prostate, resulting in cries, moans, and um, the clip, I assume, will be cut in here of I'm dying. What are you doing? Come on, you don't get this opportunity every day. Don't you want to have some fun? Well, yeah, sure. But I wasn't expecting you to do that. Leave it to a thief. I'm dying. I'm dying. You gotta stop. You seriously recorded that? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I somehow missed that this was a prostate massage. <laughs> There's a comment he makes about how only a thief would go there, and it it's either he got pegged or he got fingered. I don't know which. <laughs> or yes. Maybe that comes across more in the... Uh, maybe I'll rewatch... Uh, I'll watch the dub instead of the sub and see if... Maybe it might be a, like the sub didn't really give it away elaborate yeah maybe yeah um and lupin goes seriously you recorded that and fujiko just replies with um agony and ecstasy two things everyone feels that not everyone can tell apart we also learn that the secret cipher to open the locket is just zenigawa's name in in kanji because of course it is uh, she she starts twisting the little safe around on his Zenigata, and it cracks. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then for our our last bit, um, Oscar swears revenge as his boss chews him the fuck out, but not in the way that Oscar wants. No. Completely dropped the ball, kicked out of my office. Get the fuck out of this building, buddy. If only Oscar had a humiliation fetish. Way too uptight. Yeah. So, how'd y'all feel about these episodes? Oh. The second one was a lot. Okay, so I think the first one is definitely the best one we've seen so far. Mm. Because I think, despite some editing messiness, like when Zenigata is getting attacked by the uh, the Axanubai, Anubises. You mean uh, Jigen? Sorry, Jigen, yes. And Jigen was getting attacked by the, by the statues. Uh, I think that has the tightest script and like the tightest theming and like the best lines in the show so far, at least in terms of like as a single package, it really comes together and you come away with the message, right? Like you come away with something. This one, it is, well, the problem is that it is full of yikes. 
and and yikes in many different directions. This isn't just like, oh, Oscar is calling Fujiko, you know, a spittoon the whole time, which even though that happens here, it's briefly, briefly, but like there's a lot of even if it's not shown like assault implications, it definitely Oscar like supposedly was going is like putting out Fujiko for Lupin just as kind of a not just bait, but also kind of uh, like punishing her like that's an extreme yikes. Fujiko trying to seduce two different teenagers. Also, yikes. Uh, <laughs> like there's so many yikes on top of yikes on top of yikes. Like. Like, I do like that they're like the the twist definitely got me with Oscar being person in disguise here. Same. Like, and I think the way that like it is kind of like fitted together and kind of like a clockwork type of plot, you know, is actually pretty strong. It's just that there's so much yikes embedded into it. <laughs> and then there's a couple of things that are kind of like, why did they give the guns to the teenagers? What is going on there? It's it's where the it's where the Lupin, you know, uh, cartoon logic comes in. Yeah, yeah. Like it's almost great. It is almost great. Oscar is a character I find fascinating because this is straight up what splits the first as of now half of Lupin from the second half cuz at this point, we've only had up to part 3. This kind of kicks off a revival. We've had parts 4 through 6 since this. And this show influenced the series a little afterwards. It it kind of brings it into a more modern era. It's a little more risque, but it also plays around with some modern day conventions. But also, Oscar is a character who is designed to be a rival to Fujiko, and they have never used Oscar again post-woman called Fujiko Mine. I mean, kind of poison that well, huh? <laughs> well, I love the concept. I think it's an mm. interesting one. I don't think a lot of people know what they would do with this character. And this show might also not, depending on how you take the ending. <laughs> so, I love it. I mm -hmm. think that uh, I will just... Steal a bit from Ryan. Sometimes you need messy queers, but <laughs> this is also not. I don't want every character, every gay in a series to be like this. However, I think it's the perfect foil for Fujiko in this series, mm -hmm. who is way more sexually open and figuring her shit out, even if we haven't really had that take center stage yet just as much as some of the rest of the cast is. Like, I would say, if you are someone who is more comfortable with the messier trappings of exploitation films, like, I could imagine someone watching this and being like, this just fucking owns front to back, right? right like, yeah. This is hitting all of the beats and all of that griminess. Like, it is grimy. And if you are comfortable with that grimy, it's great. I'm like less comfortable as I get older with this kind of stuff. And like, I'm willing to like it. This is definitely not like cheap thrills. I don't think, I think this earns it a little bit more than say in other spots in the show so far. 
but it's still like it's hard, it's just going to be hard to recommend somebody to watch this unless you're very comfortable with you know some uncomfortable shit. Garrett, what are your thoughts before I say any more? Um, what are my thoughts? Um, I thought I kind of thought the the first the first episode here, episode five. I thought it was kind of just kind of there for the most part. I think um the lady and the samurai is probably my favorite episode so far, um out mm. of all of these. Uh, good um, news, episode seven is back to Fujiko going on. Nice. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but talking about episode five, um, did did get me to in- enjoy it more. So it's definitely up there. Um, Prison of Love, as I said, just kind of a lot. Um, I I do agree. I I think there is interesting and good storytelling stuff there. It is just surrounded by a lot of messier, yikesy esque things. Um, because, because that's the thing I just keep kind of falling back to, like, like there is a place to tell stories that have these kind of problematic things in them. I just don't think the show is necessarily handling them the best way where Mm. it's not necessarily giving you a pass, but kind of understanding you know what it's being used for and how it's going through like i think mm. i think there is a version where this can play out and they can hit a lot of the same things with changes to make it more of like an acceptable watch if that makes sense yeah what i'm curious like to think back on it now is like so why was this set in a girl's school right like why did they choose to make this a class s episode what is it about the because plot mario or the details yeah i guess that would be the main thing right or or you could say this is since we're making oscar a major character here and you could say oscar might have gender envy like it's oscar playing into that gender envy like putting in an environment where that would be the case right i also wonder um, if like um this could maybe be like a predecessor to when we get to Fujiko's past where she was in a girl's school from the other side and maybe maybe there's something that'll play back and shine some more light on this probably not likely but would be interesting if that happened but that's like um actually you will get an episode about some of that interesting mm-hmm Okay, so there could be something interesting there, but that's that's like a good point too. Is is kind of like why this was set up this specific way, and I they definitely flirt with reasons for it. I, I guess maybe it's just it's kind of messy to kind of take a definitive read out of it to kind of justify all the stuff. Like, there's no clear. It's hard to point at it and be like, mm-hmm. "Oh, this is what we were trying to do here." And I feel yeah, like I, I, if there was something yeah. closer to that, it would help to to justify what goes on. Yeah, I, I feel like I want someone who is way more plugged into like the things this is referencing and also the context around the show that like 
I want someone smarter to be writing about this and I want to read about it because like I, I want to hear more nuanced or more detailed takes on it, which probably means I'm going to look up Ry Kaiser's writing on this because I know they are a huge fan of this uh, particular um, show. And having read all of their episode posts about Utena, like I, I know they're very, they're a very strong writer. Uh, so I will kind of dig into this a little bit more at some point. Uh, but yeah, I feel like I'm not like fully equipped to deconstruct this. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, I agree with that. I like, I understand that like, there's definitely stuff going on here, but I feel like as you like write closer to like the proverbial line and crossing over it with like themes and things that happen, there's, a finesse that needs to be there that doesn't necessarily hit with the show. Hmm. I think this very much works for me, both as the aspect of messy queer elements and because this is peak Mari Okada based on where she was in her career at this point. This is a lot. Looks like Oh, Maidens came after this to some degree, so maybe this was a dry run for the elements that would go into that series. But I definitely think she's someone who can handle this, maybe based on the strength of me seeing her later works where she's gotten the hang of it more. It's mm-hmm. enough that it gives me the willingness to say, I think she does well with it. I still enjoy this series as a whole. And I think that one of the strongest parts of it is, while it does have a serial narrative threaded through it, it's willing to be episodic from beat to beat. And so if you don't like episode six, congrats, we're not doing episode six over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wouldn't say like, oh, no, I don't know if I would call it, it's like, it's not a bad episode, like. I I just think there's just a lot of caveats to it. I I personally think it's the better episode out of the two we watch, but mm. there's just a lot around it. There yeah. there's just more you have to be okay with to get through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With that, do we want to quickly go into plugs, Garrett? Um, yes, I sometimes host another podcast, um, Dreaming Through the Decacast. Uh, com, where I drag two of my friends through watching Kamen Rider using um, the plot and series of Decade as its focal point. It is definitely one of the most conceptually dense podcasts I listen to. <laughs> Matt? Yeah, um, big one is Lightning Strikes Thrice. Sybil and I are on it. It's JRPGs. We are currently covering... Final Fantasy VIII, and I'm having a good time. I don't know about you, Sybil. I'm loving Renoir's adventures. <laughs> God, I'm going to walk into that every single time. You are. Um, I'm going to continue doing it because it's not a bit. Besides that, if you want to listen to Sybil... Actually, no, Sybil, you're not on this one. <laughs> if you want to listen to the other Boku no Stop, the premium version, we're covering Death Note, talking with Chris and John on that one. That one's been weird. And then also, if you want to learn more about Class S, uh, you can go to <laughs> Okazu, where I occasionally write, uh, you know, some guest articles at uh, okazu.yurikon.com. 
And with that, you can also get extra episodes of this show, as well as other things on the network, if you go to pitchdrop.cash and support our Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. We have plenty of bonuses for every show on the network, and an entire extra show, Icons and Icons, which is basically Lightning Strikes Thrice about noted famous JRPG Final Fantasy XIV, covered by nobody on this show. Yeah, that'll be it, and we'll be back in two weeks asking the question, can Fujiko finger her way out of World War III? I'm going to guess yes, and it's literally what you just said. I mean, of course it is. Two knuckles. <laughs> See ya. Uh, peace. Bye. <laughs>